Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. So IXL Learning is a multi-subject online program for kids, and it's used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 14 million students use it. And if you have kids who are trying to get ahead or if they're struggling with certain subjects or studying for a test that's coming up, IXL is this personalized learning tool that you can use to help kids learn what they need to learn faster. And they have programs K through 12, so there's something for every level. And some of my nieces and nephews have been homeschooled, and so my family has used tools like this to supplement curriculum or to brush up or to sharpen skills. IXL Learning has won tons of awards, and so many students have benefited from it. So make an impact on your child's learning, get IXL now. And Ologies listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Ologies. So visit IXL.com slash Ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, so just a quick note up top of apologies. Sorry, this one is up a little bit later than usual. I know we're probably about... 12 to 24 hours behind on the posting, but I just had a really, really bananas couple of weeks with a loved one in the hospital and my wallet got stolen. And also I was moving and doing a couple of different shoots for Netflix and such. Just had a couple of surprises the last couple of weeks, so I'm a little bit behind. So sorry, this is going up late, but you can expect it at its normal time next week. Also, if you're hearing this before June 7th and you're in the LA area, I will be at the Natural History Museum's First Fridays doing a live ologies Q&A with a curator there. So if you're in LA, come to First Fridays, say hello to me. That's on June 7th. Okay. Oh, hey, it's that sweatshirt who's so flattered that you've worn it three days in a row, but it's starting to get concerned for you. Allie Ward, back with another episode of ologies. You know, there are are a few episodes that I've started off just letting you know, mm, I wasn't so sure about something. Please see dinosaurs, scorpions, and cats, because I'm just, I'm really a dog person. But I ended up loving those things and subjects, because what it boils down to is to know something is to respect it, to respect it is to appreciate it. And this episode is ticks. Will I love them? Mm, well, just Listen, but first, listen to me thank some people, namely the folks at patreon.com slash ologies for making the show possible by giving as little as a quarter an episode to ask questions and see behind the scenes info. Also, thank you to everyone getting ologies merch and tagging your Instagram photos ologies merch so I can repost them. Thanks to everyone who just gasses me up on the weekly by subscribing and rating the podcast and for reviewing, which I shamelessly creep and appreciate. And this week... P.S. Hashid said, honestly, I wanted to make a lot of environmentally friendly changes in my life. I just never got around to it. This podcast single-handedly accelerated me to purchase reusable bags, reusable saran wrap and produce bags, volunteer my engineering talents to earth-saving needs, spread the news about sustainable practices and infinite other responsible practices in like a couple months. So they say, thank you for accelerating me towards changing our world. Thank you. Let's not stick straws up turtle noses. Deal? Deal. Okay. 
acrology, acrology? I'll figure it out. But it comes from the Greek akari, which means cheese mite or tick, which comes for the word for tiny. P.S. Side note, I just was like a cheese mite, and I just found out that there are certain mites that live on the outside of cheese. Some folks eat them because they impart kind of a floral, earthy flavor. So now we all know something about cheese mites. Okay, ticks. Ticks and mites are arachnids, like spiders, but in the subclass Akari. And tick nymphs have six legs, but they have a glow up, and they molt, and then boom, adults have not six legs, but eight, an extra pair of legs just waiting to hug and kiss you. And by that I mean cling to you and drink your life juices with its stabby, dirty mouth. I love bugs so much. But ticks and cockroaches are two that I just, I have a beef with. I want to love them, but their existence in my personal space is just a one-way ticket to Barf City. But this was a topic that we should all know more about, and I saw this ologist's work via Twitter. A tick expert based in Connecticut, I gently DM'd her, hoping our schedules would align, and sadly, they did not for a face-to-face meetup. And y'all know me. I'd rather bro down in the same room than have like an echoey phone talk. But this ologist was wonderful and recorded her side of the conversation into our computer. And though the sound quality isn't the same as if we were chit-chatting in the same room in a Hampton Inn, it's totally clear and this information is timely as hell. So the weather's getting warmer in the U.S., hemlines are crawling upward, lawns are flourishing. We all need to know what the hell's going on with ticks. Now, we talk about ticks in this episode, where they live, where they lurk, how to detect them, how dangerous they are, bug sprays, conspiracy theories, and what to do if you find one on you. This ologist is a medical entomologist and associate professor of biology at West Connecticut State University, where she runs the Tick-Borne Disease Prevention Lab, which focuses on the prevention of Lyme, other tick-borne infections, which, according to many reports, have just risen very sharply. So how can we stop them from spreading? How do we outsmart these buggy buggers? So, ticks, what is their deal? Why do they want to kill us? Or are they just like, oop? Shoot, I was just hungry. I'm so sorry. Dang it. Side note, when it comes to the infections themselves, there's an amazing disease ecologist in San Francisco who studies things you can catch from a tick. And y'all, Dad Ward's over here just doing her best to interview her this week and make this a two-parter. So stay tuned. Cross some fingers. But for now, the first step is understanding the life cycle and the bitey habits and the mind of the tick. This info is critical. So tuck your pants and your socks and get ready. It's about time for some TikTok with Dr. Nita Pardanani Connolly. So thank you so much for talking to me. I'm so excited to talk about ticks. You have no idea. Thrilled. I'm excited too. Do you tell people straight off the bat that you work with ticks? Are you excited at cocktail parties to be like, guess what I work on? Actually, yeah, I used to do that. And now I, I try not to. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, any chance I get, I will talk about it. But I, I try not to lead with that. I think I learned a long time ago, you know, sometimes it's not always what people want to talk about. Really? Yeah. I would think people would be dying to just milk you for information. Well, I mean, it may it may have come from a childhood experience I had with talking about 
uh, head lice at the dinner table at a friend's house. Oh, learning it was Did not. You cool. Did you have them? Oh yes. Yeah. So actually, so I was about eight years old, and my um, my brother and I got sent home from school with head lice, and my mm-hmm. mom, um, she's a pathologist, and she <laughs> was like, "Oh, cool." So she had a microscope in her bedroom which didn't seem weird to me at the time. (laughs) And she, you know, found an adult, you know, head louse in my brother's hair and she took it out and put it under the scope and we got to look at it. And I was like, this is amazing. And so, you know, not that long afterwards, I went to my best friend's house for dinner and I start telling them about this, you know, close-up view of my head louse and how these little claws it was holding onto the hair and it was had these little hairs hanging off of it and it was the coolest and I was shut down I learned very quickly that it was uncool and it was not dinner time conversation and um it, it stuck with me I think for quite some time some time did you get invited back anytime I did I learned a lot at that friend's house I you know my parents are from India and I didn't learn how to you know eat spaghetti with a fork properly I didn't know what mayonnaise was until I was in my teens so it was uh yeah I thank goodness for that friend I I learned a lot about how to be behave (laughs) I think a lot of us don't really know what mayonnaise is to be honest (laughs) your memoir needs to be headlines and mayonnaise (laughs) (laughs) so wait now is a is a head louse is that a mite no, it's a louse. A type of mite? No, a mite. Okay. No, it's not. And so I, it's a, it's a different organism than okay. a mite. Um, a mites and ticks are related. Lice are totally different. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so when did you start? When did you decide to start studying bugs? Oh well, so I think the way that it the best describe how this sort of evolved was when I I was a biology major and um, everyone in my family basically is a medical doctor and I think there was this expectation that that I would head that direction and you know I'm interested in human health but uh, I took this uh, parasite biology class in college and uh, it was very cool so human parasites so you know worms Uh and you know things that live inside but also things that live outside you know ectoparasites and so mm-hmm. I uh, I thought it was really amazing and so interesting and then I went on to do pursue a graduate degree in parasite biology and it turns out a lot of the parasites that you know are found inside people are transmitted by insects and, and arthropods like like ticks uh, and so it just sort of evolved in, in that way so I found myself living in a place where black-legged ticks were ubiquitous and uh, and so it really just felt it felt very natural to be able to study to start studying these these organisms and were you raised in Connecticut or did you go there for school uh, I did not I was raised in upstate New York outside of um, mm-hmm. Albany and um, and so that is where I started my tick journey little background Nita got her bachelor's in animal biology from Louisiana Tech a master's in public health studying human parasitology from Tulane University in New Orleans, and then went on to earn a PhD in environmental science focusing on medical entomology from the University of Rhode Island. She's also been an associate research scientist at the Connecticut Emerging Infections Program at Yale School of Public Health. Woman knows ticks. 
really the work that I've been doing uh, related to ticks since 1998 has been in the Northeastern United States. Wow. Which is the place for them. Yeah. Well, yes. The black-legged tick for sure. The deer tick. And now... Have you heard of the term? Have you heard of the word acronologist? Does anyone ever call you that? Acrologist. Yes. Acrologist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have like one job here, and that is to furnish the ologies. But sometimes, despite having them on my radar for years, I just boom, oops, can't remember what they are. So I just did the equivalent of when your dad doesn't know a band name, but tries to act like he does. So just quietly mortified. But we're going to move on. I don't normally call myself an acrologist, but I guess I, technically I would be. Um, I tend to uh, call myself a medical entomologist, uh, entomology being the study of insects and, and arthropods and the medical piece being the part about uh, where these these organisms are important for causing disease in humans. And now getting to what is a tick, obviously it's an arthropod, um, but can you be more specific about what makes a tick a tick i am the tick and how did they get that way oh how did they get that way (laughs) okay so what makes a tick a tick Uh, a tick is an organism that's sort of a cousin of spiders it's also related to to mites and it is distinguished from insects meaning it is not an insect by some some key features whereas an insect would have three body segments and six legs uh ticks do not have three body segments they really have one major body segment, and then they have this sort of head area, at least in the tick that I study, and, and it's called a basis capitulum. And, and ticks in most stages have eight legs, similar to their, their spider and mite cousins. Quick aside, isn't it weird that every tick has grandparents and cousins? Like every bug you see has uncles. Anyway. They are parasitic and so they uh they require a blood meal in order to carry out their life cycle just the words blood meal it's so <laughs> dramatic <laughs> like a blood meal just it feels definitely like they're a tiny tiny villain in a story do do we just know them as villains or are ticks good for anything uh well i mean in the general you know ecosystem the ticks will serve as food sources for, you know, other organisms like birds will eat them, for example. But if you're asking me, you know, would our world be okay if we eradicated all the ticks? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I personally really admire ticks very much. Of course, I don't want people to become sick, but I think they're really, if you if you learn a little bit about them, you can kind of admire how they've evolved to be pretty sneaky. And although they are the villain, like, you know, they do a really good job at it. What are some of the things that you admire about ticks and how they go about doing their business? Okay, well, the tick that I primarily study is the black-legged tick, and many people call that uh, the deer tick. And mm-hmm. it is um, a very like hardy animal, right? So it can survive, you know, in, in temperate regions of, of the United States in the Northeast and in, in the upper Midwest. And so it can sustain very cold temperatures. Like it can live in, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin where it's very cold. It can live for a long time under the snow. It lives for a long time. This particular tick has a two-year life cycle. Two years. Granted, I have refrigerator mustard older than that, but still that's 24 of your period's 
that's two Hanukkahs, that's a longer lifespan than some pairs of shoes or the span of getting a master's degree. So just think, you could meet someone, fall in love, move in together, fall out of love, break up, and maybe be over it, and there's still a tick out there that was on the planet for all of it. That was sadder than I intended, but whatever. It's kind of hard to kill this tick. And uh, on top of that, when it is, uh, when we think of it as a, a parasite, as something that, you know, requires a host in order to carry out its life cycle, uh, it really has, a, you know, evolved to have these features that makes it go, um, you know, undetected. So this tick in particular and many tick species will feed for several days on a host. And so if you mm-hmm. think about a mosquito, you know, it lands, it takes a quick blood meal. And by the time you realize it's there, you know, you've swatted it away. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when a tick has to feed on a host for several days, it doesn't want to be detected, right? So it has this saliva that is full of all sorts of components that can fight the host immune system. So you, you don't typically, when you're being a host for a tick, you may not feel it. You won't feel itchy. You don't feel pain uh, because it has in its um, in its saliva. It has you know vasodilators. It has anticoagulation factors. It's got these substances that really can protect it, and also it it keeps your blood from clotting. And so you can it can just start pulling in that that blood very effectively. Okay, so just a little aside on why they are tiny creepy vampires. So many tick species need a blood meal to get to its next life stage, kind of like a video game, leveling up, only they are detecting your breath, your odors, and your movement, and sometimes crawling on vegetation and outstretching their top two legs waiting to hug you. This very thirsty behavior is known as questing, and I hereby think it should be applied to humans who go out looking for a sugar mama, or a money daddy, or a non-binary Bucks fuck. That last one could use some workshopping. Any hoozle. They find some skin, they cut you like a bitch, and then they stick their straw face in you, sometimes using cement-like saliva to tack it down, like hot glue on a bad craft project. So their saliva might contain a few thousand proteins that do everything from anesthetize you to administer like an anti-inflammatory so your skin doesn't freak out and tattle that you are being used as a blood buffet. Did I mention that they can get engorged with your blood 200 to 300 times their original weight? Can you imagine what a boss you'd be if you could hose a soup plantation like that for the price of one meal? Like pay $15.99 and walk out of there weighing 4,000 pounds and just set for the winter? Ticks do that. They don't even pay the price of admission. They sneak in the back while you blinked. I mean, respect. And so it's it's pretty good. And, and it's not to say all people don't have a reaction to tick bites because some people have quite a reaction, particularly after they've been bitten several times. But uh, the fact that it can go on undetected, particularly the adult stage ticks that are, are pretty large, uh, is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's kind of like the stealth bomber of tiny parasites. <laughs> totally. Under the radar. And now you mentioned adults versus little guys. And I understand that the nymph are the size of a poppy seed. Okay, so quick background on this. I mentioned this in the epidemiology episode with the doctors, Aaron, of this podcast will kill you. Hey, ladies. So the CDC, to really viscerally, appallingly 
delightfully illustrate how tiny ticks are. Put three little baby tick nymphs on a big, like, softball-sized Costco poppy seed muffin. And it wasn't until the third confused zoom-in that you could even see their little leggies. Us Americans, not always fans of truth and consequences, shamed the CDC into taking it down. But I like to burn the image into your brain, not to ruin muffins, but to make you just stop and think. If I had a poppy seed somewhere on my body right now, would I even know? And as a person who got ranch dressing on her face hours ago, I'm going to wager a no here, buddies. So they're very tiny, right? Now, in terms of their life cycle, are a lot of the little guys out in the spring? Is there a higher risk of tick bites in in this time of year? Yeah. So the way that it works is there's three main stages. There's the larval stage, which usually feeds on small mammals and birds. And then there's the nymph stage, which you said is the size of about a poppy seed. And actually, we put them under the microscope here in the lab because we were like, are they really the size of a poppy seed? Yeah. And they actually, they are approximately the size of a poppy seed, but truly the poppy seed is easier to see. I see. You know, oh. it's a little bit darker than a, a nymph stage black-legged tick, and uh, and you know the coloration is more uniform, so it, it really is maybe easier to see a poppy seed than to see the nymph stage tick. But the tick uh, in its nymph stage uh, in this region, the northeastern United States and in the upper Midwest where it's most common, are typically active, most active in the spring and early summer months. So we really see them start coming out in May and then really picking up after Memorial Day with their activity peaking in the uh, early few weeks of June and then, you know, slowly, you know, subsiding as we get into the end of July. And it's not to say that you couldn't find a nymph during other months of the year. You certainly can. We, we collected some nymphs in October last year, but they're most active during the spring and early summer months. And is that when most people who get a tick-borne illness will contract it or does that happen, you know, pretty much all through the temperate months. Yeah, so most cases of Lyme disease and some of the other diseases that are associated with black-legged tick bites occur, um, you know, during the time or shortly after the time when the black-legged tick nymph stage is active. So spring and summer, we see cases into to August and September. But with that said, the adult stage of tick, which is active in the fall and in the spring and even in the winter when the weather is above, you know, freezing, that also can can transmit uh, infectious agents to humans and actually is twice as likely to be infected than the nymphs. But the thing about nymphs is that they're out during the time of year that more people tend to be recreating outside. Uh, And also they're very tiny and the, the adults are a little bit easier to spot. So yeah, it's kind of just, you know, it's bad luck for us, but good luck for the tick in terms of their timing of activity. Okay, so adult ticks, bigger and more Lyme and disease-ridden. Nymphs, less Lyme, but it's more likely you'll find one in a crevice in spring because no one is out in November picnicking at an outdoor concert series or making out with a Tinder date in a park or heading to the woods to cook over a fire or making an appearance in a Speedo trying to get that D, that sweet, sweet vitamin D. So what about flimflamory? Is there any that Nita would just like to take to the mat and debunk Yes. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, (laughs) Ticks do not fly. They don't jump. They don't hop. Right. So you hear a lot of people saying that the ticks are falling out of the trees under their heads. And so that is 
unlikely to happen. They're on the vegetation, you know, when they're look when they're the smaller stages are looking for mice and birds and they're kind of low to the ground. And then the adult stages are looking for deer and they tend to crawl up a little higher on the vegetation to find a deer. And then they'll crawl upward on on people until they find a good spot. So if you find a tick on your head, it it probably found you somewhere lower on your body and crawled upward and it didn't fall out of a tree. So that is something that I think is often um, misunderstood. Did it fall from the sky? No. And um, I think that's the big one in that and that and leaving the head in. We don't really leave the whole head in, just the, the feeding tube um, when you when you remove a tick and and I think just getting removing it is the most important thing. So even if you leave a little piece of the mouth part, it's better than leaving the tick attached. Right. Um, Ugh. Do you ever uh, look at Dr. Pimple Popper? Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> Funny you mention that because I actually don't really watch TV and recently we had a friend over and it was late in the night and they decided to show us this and it was really something. Wow, that's disgusting. There was this one little video she posted where she's like, yeah, I was treating a patient, dermatology patient, and his girlfriend was like, hey, can you check out this growth I've got? Uh -uh. We had it for a couple days and she looked and it was like a fully engorged dog tick. Oh, wow. It was just floopy flopping off of her abdomen and Dr. Pimple Popper was like, yeah, that's a tick. But I guess she just thought it was a new mole. Wow. I know. Well, so that so that surprises me a little bit just because, um, you know, adult ticks, particularly dog ticks, are quite big. And particularly yes. when they're engorged. I mean, think of like a raisinette. That's really what they look like to me. Um, yeah, sorry if I ruined raisinettes for you forever. But, <laughs> I, you know, I, they do. That's If you put an engorged female deer tick next to a raisinette, they're almost hard to tell apart. And I, oh, and I, that's how big it is. If you had one of those hanging off your, your abdomen, I think that would be, at least for me, would be alarming. See the head right there? And this is the body here with the feet. So we need to try to pick it up. Sorry, am I hurting you? God, that thing was on tight. But, you know, with nymphs, even when they're engorged with blood, you know, they're still very small and, uh, and so I think that, you know, not being able to detect one or, or no, or just think it's like a fleck of dirt uh, is very common. Mm -hmm. I do love the CDC poppy seed muffin comparison. <laughs> that was great. I was so bummed when they had to take it down. People were grossed out. I was you like, know, oh, that's a oh, see, I love that. I also think that that was great and very effective. And I know it maybe ruined poppy seed muffins for some people, but I, I thought it really just drives home the point and the yeah. visual of like, this is what you're looking for. So, yes. So maybe um, we can we can bring back the poppy seed muffin. It's better to be grossed out for thirty seconds on Twitter by a poppy seed muffin than to be, you know, putting yourself at risk. What's the best way to not get bitten by one? Oh. Is it repellent? Is it wearing just a wetsuit all the time? <laughs> what do you suit do? of armor? Yeah. <laughs> so unfortunately, in you know the forty years since Lyme disease was first described, you know, right here in the state of Connecticut, we you know, haven't really done a super job at getting people to prevent disease. Um, in fact, the number of cases in the nation has been growing rather than rather than uh, subsiding. But what we, we do know from, from many research studies is that there are some things that may be protective against Lyme disease specifically. So, for example, we know that in a couple of studies, performing bodily tick checks frequently can be protective against Lyme disease. So, that is inspecting your body and that's includes your entire body. Oh.
So particularly the cracks and the crevices and the, you know, armpits. Yeah, well, right. So because the tick will crawl up, right? So it'll crawl, it'll find its host. It'll be waiting on the vegetation for a host to walk by. And so it may, you may encounter it at your leg, but if there's no skin showing there, it will keep walking up until it finds some skin. So that might mean it will crawl under your shirt and into your armpit uh, or up into your hair behind ears. We find a lot of them at places that are, you know, constricted by, say, a bra strap or, you know, underwear, uh, waistbands, those kinds of things. And so uh, performing a tick check is a good idea. And actually performing one daily is uh, a great idea because the Lyme causing tick, the black-legged tick, is unlikely to transmit the bacteria that causes Lyme if it's been attached less than 24 hours. Oh, Okay, so this is amazing news. There's a magical window, an almost biological grace period in which you are less likely to have one of these tiny bastards drool a disease into your blood. So take a moment to just feel yourself all around. Get comfy with a hand mirror. Also, you can do this one thing that people on the bus might appreciate as well. Yeah. So the other thing you can do, and there's a couple of studies that support this, is uh, take a bath or shower uh, shortly after coming inside from being outside. So that could work in a couple of ways. So you could be um, washing off ticks that haven't yet attached. If the tick is attached, you you know, it's not going to wash off. Unfortunately, it will stay there. The water will not do anything to deter it. But uh, if you haven't, it hasn't attached, you could maybe wash it off. You're also removing the clothes um, that you're wearing that may have ticks crawling upon them. Uh, and another thing you can do, and this is all this sort of personal protective measures you can take. You can take your clothing after you've been outside and put it right in the dryer. There was a study that showed that if you put the clothes directly into the dryer and dry them on high heat for 10 minutes, it should kill the ticks that are crawling upon them. What do you do when you're out in field season and your job is literally to get yourself close to like a tick bomb and just drag layers of cloth through tick infested weeds like what do you what do researchers do do you just cover yourselves in like deet what happens <laughs> yeah well so in my case my, my goal is to get as many ticks as possible so I don't cover myself oh. in deet at all um, in fact in you know when I'm sampling for adult ticks I find that I'm more effective using my body as a method to, camp, to collect ticks than to use uh, a flannel tick drag or a flag which is what we use typically to collect uh, nymph stage ticks and so you know our field staff I of course want to keep everyone very safe. Uh, they wear long sleeve uh, white coveralls that zip up to the neck. They tuck their pants in long white socks. And depending on the study that we're doing, uh, oftentimes we have those coveralls. They are treated with uh, products that contains permethrin, which is a pesticide, it acts as a pesticide and also a repellent, which we know is very effective at uh, and repelling and killing ticks or knocking them down. And so you actually can buy this um, this stuff to put on your own clothing and it's great because it lasts through many washings so it's a it's called permethrin and you can you can either buy a retail clothing item that is already factory impregnated with permethrin or you can buy the spray usually you can find it at camping and hiking sort of retailers okay side note i know all about this chemical because i was covered in a constellation of red itchy bumps in hawaii last november and i spent most of my time in paradise convinced I had scabies and rubbing this formula on me just in case. Turns out it wasn't scabies, just mosquitoes. But now I have half a tube of this in my medicine cabinet and I just hope no one discovers and Googles it. 
I feel like we're closer now that I've shared. Anyway, it's a synthetic form of compounds found in chrysanthemums, and it acts by disrupting nerve cell membranes, causing paralysis and death of some ticks and mites and other bugs. You can also just mist it on your cargo shorts and not on your actual body, but rubbing some fresh mums down your pants likely will not do the trick. It also wouldn't hurt if you wanted to. And you can spray, say you have gardening clothes or clothes you do um, yard work in, you can spray that and those can be the clothes you wear outside. Um, But typically we don't, you know, we don't, we want the ticks. So we just are, you know, have eagle eyes. We check one another um, after being at each field site and, uh, and we do it that way. But for my children, you know, I have um, two kids and, and everybody knows that tick checking is part of our daily routine, um, sometimes multiple tick checks a day and taking a bath or shower, particularly this time of year, um, everybody bathes daily. And uh, I highly recommend that. And that's not, you know, there's all sorts of landscaping uh, things that you can do in your backyard. But, uh, you know, taking a bath or shower is really, you know, it doesn't cost a lot. We like it when people bathe. It's not controversial. Mm -hmm. It's easy to do. Well, it depends on if you're depressed. But yes, that should be easy. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten bitten by a tick? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I've been bitten many times by ticks over the years. And uh, it, it's, a, I think, a, a hazard of the occupation. And now, you obviously, you study Lyme disease, which is such a huge issue right now. Have you ever worried that you have contracted Lyme disease or what are your personal feelings about it? Oh, well, certainly Lyme disease is a very important human disease and everyone should who lives in an area where these ticks are prevalent should be aware and, and really try to prevent it. Now for myself, so I don't know if you call this lucky or unlucky, I've in my life, I've always been extremely sensitive to the bites of many different kinds of arthropods. So I have a severe allergy to um, many types of stinging bees, uh, fire ants. Um, I can't, mosquitoes, I have very poor reaction. And so even with ticks, when they, I think as soon as they attach and start to salivate, uh, which they do to anchor themselves into the skin before they even start to take blood, I will get quite a large reaction to to these organisms and I'll be able to detect and and remove it. Okay, a quick rundown of what is in the ticks toolkit. And by that, I mean their alive face. So they have two palps, which are parts of their mouth, like little tough mustaches. And they have chelicerae, which cut through their host's skin. And then of course, they have that one barbed needle-like hypostome, kind of like a cross between a boba straw and Satan's tiny pitchfork. But Nita isn't a frequent victim, thankfully. So I've never had a tick feed particularly long on me. Actually, I'm not sure a tick has ever, you know, taken a blood meal, uh, at least not a black-legged tick. I did once find a dog tick in my hair that might have been there for a day. And uh, the dog tick carries, uh, you know, can transmit Rocky Mountain spotted fever, but not Lyme disease. And and Rocky Mountain spotted fever is much more rare. And it was okay. But yeah, it's something we take very seriously because this tick uh, that we study can carry not just one, but actually four recognized tick-borne illnesses. It's full of all sorts of different microorganisms that who knows, you know, may turn out to have some sort of human uh, disease-causing capability. And so all of our, you know, seasonal staff and anyone who's working in tick research, we are very careful about being safe and, and protecting ourselves. Okay, we're all crossing our fingers. I made this a last-minute 
opportunistic two-parter with a disease ecologist. But just to wet your infectious barbed whistle, here are some other things ticks can spit into you. Anaplasmosis, babiosis, borella, bourbon virus, Colorado tick fever, ehrlichiosis, Heartland virus, Lyme disease, Powassan disease, rickettsiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Southern tick-associated rash illness, tick-borne relapsing fever, tularemia, and some robot-sounding thing called 36-4-D rickettsiosis. Ticks, I know it's not your fault. You just got caught up in a bad disease racket, but dang, you are not welcome in my butt crack. So let's lightly touch on a few, though. Let's talk a little bit about the diseases in particular. You mentioned that you study five, but is the one that's at the forefront the most Lyme disease just because of its prevalence right now? Oh, absolutely. So Lyme disease is the number one reported vector-borne disease uh, in the country. So cases are reported by doctors and laboratories to state health departments who then report them to the CDC and the CDC counts them. And so each year there's about 30,000 cases, but a couple of studies have estimated that that's very well underreported and that there was a study in 2014, 2014, I think. It's estimated that the true number of cases is probably about 10 times that, maybe 300,000 cases per year. In its early stages, if caught early, most people will be treated and and be okay. Uh, but in its late stages or in, in, in some percentage of the population, even after treatment, they will have persistent symptoms or symptoms that go away and, and come back. And so those late stage complications of Lyme disease can be very serious. It can involve severe arthritis, neurological involvement, cardiac complications facial paralysis, many types of things. And now with Lyme disease, can you tell me a little bit about what are some of the symptoms of it? And is there a difference between late stage and chronic Lyme? What are we looking for? <laughs> yeah, so I'm not a medical doctor, but I I can tell you that in, in its earliest stages, Lyme disease can present itself in a very vague way, kind of flu-like symptoms and fever and malaise and, you know, feeling generally terrible. I feel awful. So unfortunately, sometimes it goes undiagnosed. The telltale early symptom of Lyme disease is what we call, many people call it a bullseye rash or an EM, which stands for urethema migrans rash. And this is a red rash that will appear usually at the bite site, but sometimes some area away from the bite site. And there may be multiple ones of them and they they are typically painless and so they can go undetected and they expand and it expands over a period of days or weeks and then it will disappear. And so you can imagine if you were bitten behind the knee, you may not see any rash that appears. If you need a visual, this rash looks like if the Target logo got a little sloppy drunk and manifested itself on your skin as if by a ghostly possession. Not to be dramatic. And so while it's believed most people who do get infected with Lyme do get a rash, not everybody does, and or it may go undetected again because it's not painful or itchy. And so, but that sign occurs uh, between three and 30 days after infection. If you can catch that 
symptom, which is a very classic clinical symptom of Lyme disease, you know, that's like one of the earliest symptoms. And so you can treat it well. And it's later stage, we're talking about things like I mentioned before, you know, severe arthritis, there are cases of Lyme carditis, which is a heart infection, um, other neurological issues, and, and it really can run the gamut. And when it comes to having Lyme disease that might be resolved with an antibiotic versus late stage Lyme or maybe what some people call chronic Lyme, how do you differentiate and and how do you also feel about some people saying one doesn't exist or I guess it's funny that Lyme has such controversy around it. By funny, I mean weird and scary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, like the way that we approach this from the science that we do is, well, first of all, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a tick doctor, I guess you could say. And it's definitely true that there's a lot of people who are very ill. And whether it's Lyme alone, or it's Lyme plus some other co-infection, or it's some other tick-borne illness, or it's some other illness, I, you know, I can't say. But I I know that there's a lot of people who are very, very ill from tick-borne illnesses, and in particular, Lyme disease. And so, the place that, that I come from and the work that we do in our lab is really focused on prevention and understanding tick behavior and also human behavior so that we can, we can prevent prevent Lyme disease, whether it's early stage or late stage or post-treatment Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease. You know, if we can do better at, at prevention science and being able to convince people to do prevention well before they have an experience with illness, um, then really hopefully, you know, we can stop having conversations or have fewer conversations about how sick everybody is and really start having conversations about how, how well we're doing at keeping people from getting sick. Right. Are there any documentaries that you like or would recommend on the topic? Are there uh, any that you're like, as a tick doctor? <laughs> I don't. I I don't. Mm-hmm. And I, it's probably only because I am. I haven't had a lot of time to, to spend watching them. So I don't know. I mean, I, I did see one documentary and I think it was called Under Our Skin or Under Your Skin. And it was very emotionally provoking. I think that it really was moving, really pointed to the problem of people who are sick with Lyme disease. The trailer of this is pretty chilling. We have, I think, a horrible epidemic. And again, Nita studies how to prevent the tick-borne diseases, not how to treat them. No, but I also think that there's been a lot of scientists who have been studying this topic for a long time, and, and so sometimes those scientists have become, you know, enemies of the public, and I just, I want everyone to get along. Yeah. I try not to, to watch that stuff, because I want, I know that me personally, like, this is my life and my career, and I, I really feel strongly about wanting to uh, do a good job in, in researching my field of study. Obviously, Lyme disease is a very charged topic. So charged, in fact, that... But we made some videos recently, so maybe I can tell you about those. Oh, yeah. if you <laughs> uh, so we so there's a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say controversy, I'd say um, questions and confusion about how people can use pesticides in their backyards to reduce the tick populations in their backyards. We get a lot of questions about that. And so recently, the, the Environmental Protection Agency awarded us a grant to try and tackle the science communication issue regarding, you know, 
know, safe, but also judicious and effective pesticide use for controlling ticks. And because unfortunately, there's a lot of, of stuff out there on the market. And there's all sorts of rules and regulations about how things can or don't have to be labeled and what you can say about how effective they are. And so um, it leads to a lot of confusion. And we think, you know, people either over apply stuff or they they apply stuff that doesn't work, but they feel like they're safe. Um, and so we, we made these, you know, story based videos. Nita says that she's trying to communicate the science in a way that's conversational, kind of like two neighbors just yakking about precautions and sharing good advice about the black-legged tick, which is a super hardy mother sucker. Anyway, go to spraysafeplaysafe.org. Again, spraysafeplaysafe.org. And you will find Nita's videos and a wealth of information on how to deal with these little backyard pests. There's also different types of control methods discussed, everything from essential oils to fungus-based ones to synthetic chrysanthemum juice, which is not the scientific term for it, but permethroids is hard to say, and I already botched acarology. Yes, Spray Safe, Play Safe has you so covered in safe and effective pesticides. And so we just want to make sure that if people, you know, the decision to use a pesticide is totally a personal one. And, um, you know, whether you want to use it or not is up to you. But if you're going to use it, we want you to be armed with all the information to make informed choices. So it's not just like throw a grenade in the backyard. Uh, No, but you know, I've been places where people have said they're going to like pave over the whole backyard, which is really sad to me. Or they say, you know, my, my rule to the children is don't touch anything green outside. Right. I know. And I'm like, was that what it's coming to? I think that, you know, we really want people to be, uh, you know, aware, but not afraid Um, because I think just, you know, arming yourself with knowledge is really important in terms of being able to keep yourself safe. Well, what about these thick populations seeming to go up or Lyme disease spreading? I know I've looked at maps from the CDC that have shown where Lyme disease essentially was first kind of identified, which, you know, old Lyme, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and then having it, seeing it kind of like bleed out. So to see these maps, go to the CDC website and you can type in historical data. I'll also link this in the show notes and on my website. So clicking year by year, it's kind of like seeing blue dots hemorrhaging like ink. And in 2017, the only states which did not have reported cases on Lyme disease were Oklahoma and Hawaii. And I asked Nita about, where are these black-legged ticks hanging out? Are they moving out of the Northeast? Are they like aging hipsters going to the suburbs? I understand that a lot of folks think it's maybe just in the Northeast, but it's been identified in ticks in in all the continental U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the black legged tick species is you know fairly spread in many places of the U.S. Besides the Northeast and the Upper Midwest, we have the same species you know down all the way in Florida and Texas as well, and in the states in between. Uh, the ecology of the tick uh, is a little bit different, and so even though we do see the tick, we see less disease. And I think up here in the Northeast, in this part of the country, we have um, sort of this perfect storm of transmission and have, it has to do with how the ticks behave and how the hosts behave. We have this this issue of, of climate change as well, which really I think is, is going to make uh, the tick situation a lot trickier. Uh, and really it is changing even more than you've seen in those maps because the, the tick range has been spreading, you know, northward and westward. And so we commonly now see black-legged ticks up in Canada. And so cases of Lyme disease are, are, are more frequently reported in Canada now. 
One thing I don't recommend looking at, unless you like to be very grossed out, appalled, and sad for a moose, is a photo of mooses covered in ticks, to the point where they look like they're just doused in pebbled concrete, or like the underside of a boat that's been barnacled. I want to help the moose so badly, even though given that I am untrained in helping moose with ticks, it would probably like to kick me in the face. Nita says that we have other tick species that are also encroaching. Take, for example, the Lone Star Tick, which sounds like the town asshole walking through saloon doors to suck your blood and leave you with an infectious souvenir. So their range is in the East, Southeast, and Midwest United States. And Nita says in recent years, they've been detecting them more and more, which means they're coming for us. Pointy mouth suckers drawn. And this tick is really important because, um, you know, it also can carry different disease-causing agents, different than Lyme disease. Um, and also, it's been implicated in causing a severe red meat allergy. And we're talking like anaphylactic red meat allergy. And the thing about that Lone Star tick is like, it is a seriously aggressive human biter. And so, it's different than these deer ticks who just kind of hang out and wait for you to walk by and they'll grab hold. The Lone Star tick will detect you from far away and will come after you. Yeah. And so, I think that, you know, talk about, you know, you think mosquitoes are a nuisance. I think, you know, nothing would ruin a picnic and a bunch of Lone Star ticks coming along and, and you know, wanting to, to grab hold. And Just do not, under any circumstances, imagine a wave of Lone Star ticks cresting and crashing into your wine and cheese basket aimed at your warm crevices. Don't imagine it. Don't imagine it. Don't do it. <laughs> In addition, you may have heard that there was a new tick in town, an invasive tick species. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's... Uh, so, yes. So, a couple of years ago, a sheep farmer in New Jersey was covered in these tiny little ticks, and she went to the health department, and they were like, take off your pants, because they're everywhere, and they put her pants in the freezer. And it turns out this tick is a tick that had previously not uh, been established in the United States. And it's known as the Asian longhorn tick. So according to the CDC, as of May 28th, 2019, which was like one second ago, longhorn ticks have been found in Arkansas, Connecticut, Kentucky, Maryland, North Carolina, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. And researchers are looking to see where else it's gone. So Google image search them and be aware. They're kind of like a reddish brown color with what appears like long legs, and they can be up to the size of a pea, fully engorged. Why are we freaking out about them? And so this tick in Asia is a serious vector of human disease. Uh, they, it carries a virus. Um, it can also uh, cause a rocky, like a rocky mountain sort of spotted fever type illness. And, uh, and then it's a serious pest of livestock. And so it's, it's now established itself here in New Jersey and Staten Island and um, parts of uh, Westchester County, New York. And this tick is really scary because it can reproduce by parthenogenesis. So what that means is the female, she can, she doesn't need a male mate to reproduce. All the single ladies, all the single so one female can create, you know, 
a thousand or more babies just essentially cloning herself. And so we really are watching, uh, watching this tick and what it's going to do. And we're, um, you know, right in sort of the center of where it has now become established. So we're really in a place of sort of, I think, uh, in this region around New York City um, and heading northward, this sort of tick apocalypse, I guess you could say, uh, where a lot is going on. And so I think we have a lot, um, you know, to learn and we're going to be seeing a lot of changes in, in terms of what the ticks are doing in the in the next decade. This is terrifying. Also, one question. Why? 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 Is it that there are more ticks or that there are more deer or that there are more like white-footed mice <laughs> or that there's more development so there's less land so they're more concentrated like where, where's why is it such a boom town for ticks yeah well so part of it is like if you think about what the landscape looks like so so the ticks have been around a long time but if you think about what this part of the country looked like you know in the year 1900 it was primarily an agricultural place right there's a lot of farmland and pasture land and there was deforestation and you know to make these grazing areas and so oh the the white-tailed deer were not so you know, abundant. As we've sort of, you know, reforested this part of the country, we've really led to an abundance of, of white-tailed deer. And so with, we know that there's a link between the abundance of ticks and the abundance of deer because deer are the primary reproductive host for the ticks. So the more deer, there's more opportunity for the, the adult ticks to reproduce. And so the other thing that's happened is that we really have started to move into these forested landscapes. So, and in doing so, we fragmented those landscapes. And so we've sort of made all these little cuts into the forest. So we're living sort of right in the habitat where the, the ticks live and the deer live. And on top of that, by fragmenting the forest, we create a lot of edge habitat. And edge habitats are really, really great for, you know, deer love them, mice love them. We find a lot of ticks right in the edge. And so the riskiest place really for encountering a tick in this part of the country is really in one's own backyard, particularly in that region, the ecotone, we call it, you know, and right where that place where the lawn is meeting woods is, is, is really your riskiest spot. But yeah, it's kind of all of the above, you know, there's a lot of deer, there's a lot of ticks, and there's a lot of people living really close to them. Oof. How do you feel about the conspiracy theories about Lyme disease having started in Plum Island as biowarfare and then spreading from there? Uh, <laughs> no comment? <laughs> I, I don't think it's likely. You okay. know, it's so complicated. Like, I, I, mm -hmm. if, if I were going to make a, I'm not, I don't want to, but if I were to think about what would make a good bio terrorist agent or biowarfare agent, I don't think I would want to choose a tick that needs all these things, right? It needs to, it has a two-year life cycle. It only feeds three times in its life. And, you know, it needs all these different hosts. It, it just seems too, too too unlikely to me personally that was the dumbest question ever but i just wanted to know if you're like oh no we figured out that that's completely legit and no oh no so yeah no and as far as i know it's not legit and i um you know it just seems unlikely i mean you think about you know, some of the bio warfare agents like um tularemia is one now tularemia can be um transmitted you know by a tick but it also has is can be transmitted in other ways and so i think like you know having only one way to transmit it or something that doesn't persist in the environment very long without a lot of other factors and, and something that, you know, people are always going to encounter. It just doesn't seem like the, um, you know, way, especially because, I mean, with all different diseases out there, you know, 
if you want to, a, a bio warfare agent would want to cause a lot of death, I would think, right? So, so I, right. I think Lyme can be very serious and even fatal in some cases, but um, it's not causing a high degree of mortality. That's funny that to think that someone would come up with a bio warfare scheme and their boss would be like, Sorry, just not fatal enough. Yeah. <laughs> Keep working on it. Well, Back really, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think to be a good bioweapon, you really have to think about those things. And I don't want to think about those things. But when I think about Lyme disease being a bioterrorist agent, I think um, it, it just seems not terribly plausible to me personally. That makes me feel a little better. Yeah. I was like, ah, we're all well, under attack. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, that thing about underreporting, I mean, for me, I think, like, we know there's a lot of cases of Lyme disease, and we know there's a lot of ticks out there. And so I just sort of have this um, attitude that is, you know what? If you live in a place where there are ticks and you go outside or you have a pet that goes outside, you're probably at risk and you should take uh, preventative action and precaution and be aware um, no matter what. And whether they're counting the case or not, you can still get sick and your doctor can still treat you. And so I think counting cases and things may be important for, for some people in terms of trying to show the scope of the problem, but in terms of keeping yourself safe from being sick, you know, mm-hmm. we know, we know people get sick and we know there's a lot of ticks and ticks are bad. What do you do if you have a pet that's out romping? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have two Australian shepherds. They're awesome. Yeah. And they are my best field assistants. They come out with me. And so we do know there are some studies that, you know, really kind of point to pets that go outdoors as potentially being an additional risk factor for getting a bite by a tick. And so treating your pet with a tick preventive product is a good idea. And, you know, treating them all year long, not just during spring and summer months, because, you know, we'll find ticks in December uh, if, the de- if the temperatures are above 40 degrees here. And so I, you know, use a collar on my dogs. They're, you know, it's good for eight months. It kills and repels. And there's oral preventatives where the dog, you know, gets a pill or the cat, you know, gets a pill and that it every month and then if a tick starts to bite it will it will die before it can feed to completion and so it can work that way there's these topical spot treatments that can work in different ways either repelling or killing on contact or also treating such that the, the tick attaches and then dies while it's feeding and which is better i don't i can't say but uh but I, I think it's very important to to treat your animals with a tick a tick product all year long. Better than not having an animal, I guess. Or you could just get goldfish. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't like that. And I think you know when I think about the behavior of of dogs and cats and things, you know, depending on if you know what your how you behave with your dog, if you take it on a leash, you may be able to avoid some of that most ticky habitat. Um, but you know, if you have cats that go outside, uh, which I've just learned is not is apparently not cool to do. I thought everyone's cats just went outside, but that's a thing now. And I I feel really dumb because I didn't know, but I'm learning now. Okay. For more on this, listen to the Felinology episode with Dr. Mikel Delgado. So much I did not know about cats. So much none of us knew about cats. Anyway. But people do still have cats that go outside. And and so those cats, you know, will go all over, right? They'll go in the woods and they'll be in the the leafy areas where the ticks are are hunkered down when they're not looking for a host. And so they can, yeah, so they they can be exposed in that way. And so even if you don't go outside, if your cat does and then comes back inside and you're petting it, you know, there is a risk for sure. 
Yeah, we don't know what cats are doing out there. They're out honky tonking. They're oh, like later days, man. Oh, They're man. out and about. <laughs> but yeah, ornithologists are like, excuse me. Yeah. Cats back indoors, please. So I guess for if for no other reason than so that you don't have to check your butt crack for ticks more often. Keep your cats inside. Yeah, totally. And there's I guess there's a lot of reasons now for keeping your for keeping your cats inside. And I felt really dumb because I didn't know. No. Maybe it's because I'm a dog person and I'm not a cat person, but I you know, shout out I love cat people. Why thank you. Well I'm just learning and I but I do know there's a yes, for sure these, you know, cats can pose a risk to, to birds and um, there's an issue issue with feral cats and mm-hmm. potential rabies transmission in certain parts of the country. So yes, PSA, keep your cats indoors. <laughs> I talked to a felinologist who's like, put it on a leash and take it to the park for an hour. That's oh, just wow. fine. Uh, but I have uh, questions from listeners who are super excited that you're on. And can I ask you some rapid fire questions? From uh, okay, sure. Okay, and before we get to the lightning round with your questions, a few words about sponsors I like very much who also make this podcast possible. But before we get to them, the sponsors also make it possible for us to donate to a charity of the ologists choosing each week. And Nita enthusiastically supports TickEncounter.org, saying it's a wonderful science-based resource for all things tick-related. And it's housed at the University of Rhode Island where she worked on her PhD. So they do great stuff. They have so many pictures of ticks, tips, that's tickencounter.org. So a donation was made to them in her name. Okay, some other things I like this week. Ologies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Squarespace. And Squarespace has been part of my daily life for the last seven and a half years. Ologies might not exist without Squarespace. I had to make a website for this and I was so intimidated. It took me over a year. And then one night I was like, you know what? I've heard about Squarespace. I'm going to try it. And now look at us. If you don't think you need a website, guess what? You probably do. Especially if you're an academic, have some place where all your papers are. People can contact you. Anyway, they have so many tools for entrepreneurs. They have Fluid Engine, which is this kind of next generation website design system. It's from Squarespace. It's drag and drop technology. You can use it on desktop or mobile. They also have an asset library so you can manage all of your files from this central hub and then you can use them across the whole platform. They have professional website templates. They have designs for every category, every use case, no matter what you need a website for. Get a website, start your business. Look, it worked for me. Ding. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You could do it. You could do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. 
It's about time. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel ya. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Rituals like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye, Z's. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Back to your questions. Okay, so Allison Turry wants to know, what is the proper method to remove ticks if you get any on you? Great. So the proper method would be get the pointiest pair of tweezers that you can find, grab the tick as close to the skin as you can and pull it perpendicular to the skin and pull up and, you know, deliberately. And so we really don't recommend slathering it with Vaseline or setting it on fire. Get some hairspray, make some flamethrowers. Some people put a (laughs) lit match, you know, which isn't a great idea. So we don't, we want the tick to come out as soon as possible. The longer it's attached, the more likely it is to transmit things that it's carrying. Uh, And we don't really know what happens if you like soak a cotton ball in peppermint oil and put it on the tick. Does it make the tick really pissed off? And then does the tick start salivating more and then more likely to transmit something? We don't know. And so, you know, we recommend that you just a pointy pair of tweezers, pull it straight out. And the thing is with the pointy tweezers, you can get the closer you can get the better because you'll hear people say, oh, I left the head in, which is actually impossible. But what you can leave is the feeding tube. It's called a a hypostome. It's like a straw, but it's barbed like a fish hook. And so it's hard to get out. And sometimes that breaks off. And that's not the end of the world. Think of it as like a splinter. Eventually, it'll work its way out. Also, when a tick is hungry versus engorged, they look so much different. And I did not know that until this episode. Full ticks can take on a grayish color. They look like a whole different species. So if you go to tickencounter.org, you can see different pictures of different stages of feeding. Kind of looks like a big gray brain that's about to burst. Pretty gnarly. Ruby Ostrich wants to know, how close are we to a human vaccine? Uh, I know that there is a lot of work in the vaccine uh, research field, and I, I don't know the answer to that. And I, I, I would like to think that we're within this decade, there will be something. And as you may know, there was a, a vaccine on the market for a short period. It was uh, removed from the market. So we'll see. I, I think that, you know, the vaccine for Lyme has a lot of potential. With that said, if the same tick that carries Lyme can transmit other 
you know, pathogens to humans, still prevention measures beyond being vaccinated are still really important, like checking your body or wearing repellent. Let's see. Raymond J. Deutsch wants to know, what is it about the area of Connecticut that lent itself to the onset of Lyme disease, do you think? Is it the altitude or climate or soil composition? <laughs> yeah, well, I, we have a lot of forested habitat with deciduous forest in particular. And so the ticks really thrive in the under the leaf litter, those dead leaves at the base of the forest. And in these forested areas, we have lots of, tick, or excuse me, lots of white-tailed deer, which are the most important host for the adult stage of, of deer ticks. And so we have great habitat. And of course, those forests are full of white-footed mice and other small mammals that can be great hosts for our ticks. And I think the other piece of it is that we live in the among these hosts and this forest. And then the third thing, and particularly here in Connecticut, is that we have in some places an abundance of an invasive shrub plant that's known as Japanese barberry. And unfortunately, uh, Japanese barberry is often sold as an ornamental plant by nurseries and garden centers. And so you can buy it and plant it. And unfortunately, it can become very widespread and, and is really damaging to the forest ecology. And the thing about Japanese barberry is now we know that places that have more barberry actually tend to have more ticks. And so it sort of adds to this, you know, already problematic environment now we have to worry about, you know, barberry uh, being something that's going to help foster the survival and of, of ticks. I mean, I get it. Barberry is pink. It's cute. It's evergreen. But barberry, GTFO, I hate you now. Ooh, so down with the barberry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you have barberry, you should consider removing it from your yard. Please don't ever buy barberry at your garden yeah. center. Find something else to plant. Um, the other thing in backyards that people have besides just like a wooded edge is um, in this region, people have this ground cover vegetation uh, like pachysandra or myrtle. And that, you know, it's very low to the ground. And then underneath it, it's a very moist environment. And so ticks, this tick species, uh, the black-legged tick, really needs a very high humidity, like 80 to 95% humidity to survive well. And so it spends a lot of time down in that moist environment. So people who have this pachysandra, it looks very nice, but, um, you know, it's a great tick haven. And so that's, again, something to consider in your own landscape. Like, should I, you know, remove it? Or if you're going to treat with a, a tick control product, you want to treat not just the wooded edge, but also, you know, ground cover vegetation where the ticks may also be abundant. So pachysandra barberry canceled. Cancel, yeah, or cancel or treat, um, or treat. Here you are. Okay. But certainly, the barberry is bad for so many reasons, not just for ticks. It just shouldn't be in our forests. Ooh, that's good to know. I had no idea. Yeah. To, the, the truth is, you know, I think knowing, just knowing about uh, whether or not you are in a risky environment for getting a tick bite can go a long way. And, and so, you know, taking preventative action and, and knowing what a tick looks like is huge. So a lot of people, they send us pictures of ticks or things they've found. They send us stuff in the mail and, you know, it's it's not a tick. And if, you, if you're able to just know the key distinguishing features, it can go a long way towards keeping people safe. And so, yeah, I... I, I 
I do. I, I am in full agreement. Lyme disease is a major problem. Tick-borne illnesses are a major problem in the U.S. And, you know, we're really focused on trying to prevent it. But I think, you know, because we're dealing with humans, you know, we're, we're pretty good, actually, at controlling ticks. And we're, we're not very good at controlling humans. Mm-hmm. And so people, we find that people don't always get good at prevention until they've been sick themselves or someone in their family has been sick. And so what right. we need is people to be thinking about it before they're sick uh, and taking action before they get a tick bite you know not waiting until that happens and it scares the you know bejesus out of everyone and then right. and then they go running around trying to figure out what to do and the other issue we have is that you know there's a lot of misinformation out there in terms of you know even prevention which you think is a benign topic just this morning on our you know community social media pages someone asked for advice about preventing backyard ticks and then the responses you know really varied from stuff that's science-based to, you know, totally erroneous and not science-based. And, and so the, the age of information has kind of put us in a place where, you know, people have to think critically about, is this good information and should I use it? <laughs> and so yeah, that, that's sure. something we're battling now is trying to understand human behavior and, and how we can, you know, get people to take action and feel, you know, empowered to, to take action in a way that is going to be effective. I think that people are a little bit just kind of stunned and don't know what to do. So they're just afraid of getting it without really knowing how to prevent it because they're so little and sneaky that it just seems like getting bitten by a ghost. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. And so it's good to know that there are measures that you can take to prevent that. Yeah. And and just understanding that like it it takes some time before it actually can can suck your blood. It's a mm-hmm. whole process. They have to salivate and they have to fight your immune system. And then they, and they, they salivate this cement so they can really stick on you and never come out, you know, mm-hmm. and not never, but not while they're feeding. And yeah. so it, but, and then they salivate and then they, you know, the blood is accumulated. It takes and they feed really slowly at first. And so like really people like they have the tick it's been on them for you know an hour they take it off they have a red mark and all of a sudden they're like i need three weeks of doxycycline right and mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily always the case sometimes the red mark right. is just you're having a reaction to a tick bite or you know it's it's it, it's knowing these small bits of information about how these ticks behave or you know what a tick looks like that can really help you know if you need to run and get three weeks of doxycycline which right. you know has its own issues we worry about antibiotic resistance and all of that so so I think you know it's it's getting to know the information but that's true for all diseases right like you're supposed to be good at preventing. you know tooth decay and so you brush every day but that's a habit right so are you checking for ticks every day what's our new motto be your crevice's best friend maybe not Uh, so how can we turn it into a habit if you can help me figure that out I'd I'd love that significant others can always be a tick check buddy I'm sure totally well yeah and if we know that tick checking is protective and we know that showering is protective maybe you can make that into like a you know activity together yeah it's like ticks, but make it sexy. Totally. Yeah. I mean, why not? If that's what it takes. Yeah. I am I mean, I'm trying to imagine what that, you know, infographic that we promote next is going to be. But why not? I mean, I think it, at this point you have to, you know, if it's going to grab your attention and make you take action, then we'll do it. Right. Can I ask you a couple more uh, listener questions? Sure. Is that cool? Um, Don Ewald wants to know, there have been some studies about mosquitoes and their possible preferences for certain blood types. Are there any studies on blood types that ticks prefer? 
Oh, so it's interesting. There are no um, studies that I'm aware of that show that ticks have a, a host preference. Uh, we do know with mosquitoes that that they do. They they will seek tend to seek women over men and brunettes over blondes. Okay, so side note, apparently there's something about the contrast that the mosquitoes just really dig. So likewise, if you're a brunette on a light, sandy beach, just watch out and don't swat them. Mosquitoes, when you swat them, they're like, oh, there you are. And then they just keep biting you. Just FYI. Also, as long as we're going down several holes on this, blondes report feeling more emboldened socially, but brunettes out earn blondes. For more on why we judge each other for stupid stuff that doesn't matter, see the two-part Kalology episode about beauty standards. Also, should I mention that one study said that redheads have the spiciest romantic lives? No, I don't want to mention that. That's gross. Oops, I did. Okay. I don't know how ticks feel about me, though. With ticks, we don't know. Um, and I, I think there's some question about that because, you know, you hear from people all the time, you know, my husband and I are both always working in the yard, but he always gets ticks and I never do. And he's more tick attractive. But in terms of, of whether or not any of that is true, we don't know. Uh, what we do know about, particularly about the black-legged tick, is that it will feed on everything. It feeds on mammals, it feeds on birds, it feeds on reptiles, and it really is opportunistic. It feeds on large mammals and small mammals. So I think that this particular tick species, the lime perpetrator, is pretty easy going when it comes, to, it comes to choosing a host, but whether or not it might choose you over me if we we're standing right there presenting ourselves as hosts, I, I don't know the answer. And I, we do talk about it a lot, and, and I think it needs further study. Nita's body, though, lets her know when she's got a sucky blood barnacle. I think it's great that you have essentially a very loud car alarm in your body that's like, <laughs> you got a tick, you got a tick. Yeah. I think it's almost... Helpful that you have an immune response to it, perhaps. Yeah, and actually, um, so some some researchers are you know trying to capitalize on that because there are people who are very reactive to ticks, and so can there be a vaccine that is an anti-tick vaccine, right? And it will make you itchy or reactive to a tick bite so that you catch it before it has time to transmit anything. So using yeah. those reactive properties that some people have to try and create a vaccine. This last listener question is: Delhi Dames wants to know how does the town of Lyme feel about having a disease named? <laughs> You'd have to ask the town of Lyme residents. I really don't know. I mean, they're, yeah, they're sort of famous for, for this. And I don't know. I guess it's good to be on the map for some reason. And actually, I mean, the, there was a woman who really was the the start of all of this becoming known. And, and her name was Polly Murray. And she was a very astute mother who was noticing that there were a lot of kids getting arthritis around the area. And so if it weren't for her real great powers of observation, you know, it might have taken a lot longer to, to come up with that. So I think the, the town of Lyme should be very proud. But I think, um, you know, why not be proud of that and, and having, you know, someone who is astute enough to say, okay, something's going on here. Yeah, there was some, I care, some kids movie I was watching with my kids. I think it was like Madagascar or something like that. And they were, you know, Chris Rock, his character was like, come on, what would Connecticut have to offer us? Lyme disease. Thank you, Melman. And I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. poor Connecticut. That's where, you know, that's what we get as being you know, what we're known for. Now, what is something about your job? Last two questions I always ask that you really hate. What sucks about ticks or your job? Uh, what sucks about ticks? You were making a pun. That was great. Um, oh, no. I swear I wasn't. I swear. But I fully understand that I have no credibility anymore when it comes to denying dad jokes. Okay. But yes, what 
slices her open and takes a blood meal out of her day. What sucks? I mean, I love my job. I feel so lucky that I can, you know, study an organism that I absolutely think is, um, you know, very important and also really very cool um, from the biology standpoint. Um, you know, as someone who is trying to run research studies and and I guess the sometimes there's a lot of, you know, paperwork and stuff like that. And that's, that's probably the hardest part, but I think that other scientists may like that more, but mm-hmm. not really for me. I think um, I feel really lucky that this is something that I get to do for my for, for my job. Um, I really love, I want nothing more than to be out in the field, you know, doing the field work, you know, collecting the ticks. We'll do, well, last summer we had a study where actually we're laying down and we were sitting and we were kneeling. We were trying to figure out what activities get us uh, or, you know, you know, be more risky than others. And I mean, I could do that all day. It's my favorite oh. thing. And when I have to stay inside and do a budget or a report, I feel so sad to watch everyone go out in the, in oh, without me. Um, because I would do it all day long, every day. I love it. Her favorite thing about her job is lying down to have ticks literally eat her alive. God, I love her. I love ologists so much. What was the position that got you the most ticks? <laughs> Stay tuned. We only did a we only did a uh, a pilot, and we're gonna um, scale it up a little bit this year. But you know, I think surprisingly to many people, um, you know, we found that a lot of our ticks were found above the knee from these activities. So mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people think you know you're only gonna if you're walking through the woods, it's gonna end up on your on your shoes, and it may be that you know it's when you kneel down to pull a weed, or when you you know drop you know pick up a stick, or you're clearing brush in your yard, you might get it on your arm and certainly laying down is a risky thing to do in the woods <laughs> i don't know how many yeah. people do that but we did it and uh oh, oh and that seemed to i think i think it was either sitting down or laying down that that exposed us to the most nymph stage ticks and it was yeah it's fun i i i don't say that lightly i know that you know ticks are a majorly risky thing but i just you know just to give you an idea of the things that we do mm-hmm. to improve yeah. prevention uh we put ourselves out there well, my last question is always, what's your favorite thing about your job? But apparently yours is lying in the woods waiting for ticks to devour Yes, you. I love it. I love collecting ticks. I love and I also love looking at the ticks under the microscope. They're just, they're amazing. If you look at one up close, they're, it's pretty astounding to see their anatomy is really complicated. Just if you could look at a picture of the tick uh, hypostome, that's their feeding tube. It has multiple um, like teeth on them and they're, they're barbed so that, you know, the tick easily can go in but it's more hard for it to come out. It's very elaborate and different tick species have different, um, you know, we call it dentation. It's the different numbers of these little teeth spines. And uh, it's really incredible to to look up close. So I, I recommend everyone take a look. It really looks like if a knife grew more knives on the surface of the knife. It's a micro horror. I mean, I love bugs. And yeah. I have to say that ticks are the, like, ticks are kind of the ones on my shit list of like ticks and cockroaches. I feel bad because I'm like, I do think that it's really great to respect them for how stealthy they are. So I think that's a great, a really good thing to start. Just outsmart them. It's don't hate them, just outsmart them maybe. I think that's a really great approach. I like that. This has been on my list forever. Thank you for being so passionate. I'm so, I'm so glad that you got head lice as a child. Uh, Me too. (laughs) It's really formed who I am. I know. 
And, and uh, I, I actually had sort of forgotten about that. And I was telling the story to someone not that long ago. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, that could have been the moment. We're all better for it. So I, thanks for getting headlines. Well, I, <laughs> you're welcome. I don't know. Yes. Bye. Bye. So hop on a phone and ask smart people stupid questions because the world is a mysterious and dark and interesting place. And I know we're all terrified of ticks, but they did a lot of evolving to get where they're at. And we have pretty big squishy brains. So let's just try to outsmart them. Again, so much info is up at tickencounter.org and Nita's videos are at spraysafeplaysafe.org. I will put a link to my site in the show notes. You can find all this stuff there. And remember, daily tick checks, be your crevices best friend. Now you can follow Nita because she's amazing. She's at TickLab on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, just at TickLab. God bless her for that uniformity. And her lab website is www.wcsutickLab.com. And I will put a link in the show notes. Ologies is at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. Say hello there. I'm at Allie Ward with one L on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you, Hannah Lippo and Aaron Talbert for adminning the Facebook Ologies podcast group full of curious non-jerks who are so sweet to each other. And ologiesmerch.com has all of your Ologies podcast merch needs, shirts and totes and pins and hats. If you post a photo to Instagram tagged with Ologies merch, I repost you on Mondays. And thank you to Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Judge for helping manage that the last two years. They're two sisters who have a brand new, hilarious and charming podcast called You Are That. And it's out now wherever you get podcasts. So find it, subscribe and get to know them in episode zero. And then on June 10th, their first episodes drop and you will love them. Also, happy birthday to Aiden Feltis on June 10th. Assistant editing was done by Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam Media. He also hosts the mental health podcast, My Good Bad Brain, which has the best theme music ever. Just trust me, go listen. You'll get it stuck in your head all day and be so happy about it. Also, thank you to Stephen Ray Morris of the Percast and See Jurassic Right for stitching this all together every week. Uh, this week it's up a little late because someone I love very much was in the hospital. And so I was out of town helping out. And also I had a few back-to-back shoots in the middle of moving. So I'm just getting my bearings and everything will be good and normal next week, I promise. Uh, which brings me to the secret. At the end of an episode, I think two weeks ago, I told y'all that my wallet was stolen at Walmart. Guess what? Guess what happened? The sheriff called and someone found it in a bush near Walmart with everything in it but the cash, which at this point is fine. And it's very good because I hadn't even had a chance to tell the DMV that I needed a new ID and I'm getting on another plane in a few hours. And the TSA side note does not appreciate expired passports as ID. They punish you with a booty massage in front of all the other passengers. But joke's on them because sometimes they squeeze your feet while doing a pat down and honestly, it's very comforting and I like it. Okay, all right. You gotta check your crevices yourself though. They don't do tick checks. Don't even ask. Not their job. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Like to check you for tips. 
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.